You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. From the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, the museum brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. So we don't often have fiction authors on SpyCast, but today we'll make the rare exception for Alex Finley, who is the author of Victor in the Rubble, a satire about the CIA and the war on terror. She is herself a former operations officer, or case officer, for CIA, and a journalist. You can find her articles on Slate, Reductress, and Funny or Die, among others. You can find more of her writing on her blog, which is at alexzfinley.com, and Twitter, at alexzfinley. She's just posted a very funny six-part series on the IC called The Intelligence Community, Smart People Looking at Computers which incidentally isn't too bad at introducing many of the important aspects of the Intel world, besides being very funny. So thank you, Alex, for taking the time to talk to us here today at SpyCast. Thank you. I appreciate you having me here. I have to make one correction, though. I was not a case officer. I was in the DO, but I was not a case officer. Okay. I'll make that correction because everybody thinks those are the coolest ones, but um, (laughs) most people actually don't like case officers. But I worked with them often, and I liked them, so... So it's a good segue. Let's talk about your background. Uh, We have a lot of listeners out there who are thinking about careers at CIA or Mm -hmm. have in the middle of a career at CIA or some other intelligence agency or trying to think about whether they should continue their career at an intelligence agency. What led you to CIA in the first place? Well, I was always interested in some kind of an international career. I was lucky enough to grow up in a household where we traveled a lot. My parents took us everywhere. And that instilled in me a sense of adventure and wanting to explore new places, new cultures, and just be in new places to see what they were like. Um, and I really enjoyed the, the new perspective that that gave me, not only on those cultures and those countries and those people, but on my own. And to be able to see, sort of in a backwards way, uh, how the U.S. is projected uh, overseas and in other countries. So the sense of adventure being international was always something that I wanted to do. Um, And so when the opportunity presented itself, I said, yeah, all right, let's give it a go. I had actually applied for an internship at the CIA when I was in college, and I was rejected. (laughs) But I found out years later that's probably fine. I probably would have been carrying out the burn bags, and that was about it. So 
Um, Professional paper shredding. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> so that probably worked out just fine for me in the end. Um, but years later, when I was in the middle of my professional career and the opportunity came, I took it. Um, I always say my third day sitting on the polygraph, I questioned if that was the right decision. <laughs> but I forged ahead, and eventually I came in. And you've written since then uh, about the bureaucracy, and we'll talk a little bit about that as we move forward, and, and about kind of the soul-crushing bureaucracy. <laughs> would you say the CIA was a positive experience? Do you look back, would you tell your younger self to... Now, you can you can be perfectly honest in this. Would you tell your younger self that this is something that she should do? Yes. Look, okay. I, you know, everything we do leads us to where we are today, and I certainly don't regret anything about where I am today. Um, I got to do very fun things. I lived in places that I maybe would not have ever gone um, before. I had a, a tour in Europe, but I also was in West Africa for a while which was a, a new place for me. I had traveled a bit personally um, in Africa, but I hadn't lived in it, and this was a chance to do so. Um, and again, that really changes how you see the world. One of the themes I talk about in Victor in the Rubble and in uh, some of my blog things also is the, the field headquarters dynamic. Mm. And I really do believe that being in a place, being on the ground, gives you a very different perspective of what's happening. Now, to be fair, the people in Washington who are making those decisions, they have their own perspective, too, of what's happening in Washington and what are the priorities and having to deal with Congress and with the White House and other things. Um, but the people who are on the ground, I think, really have the best sense of what's actually happening right. in a country. You see very similar to the military dynamic, where you've got the, the captain on the ground who's saying, look, I'm here. I understand what's happening versus somebody sitting back at the Pentagon you know, saying, no, the big strategic goals are this. And everybody's right, but there's very, it's very difficult for someone sitting back in Washington to make assessments on, uh, you know, what's happening inside North Africa, West Africa, other places they just don't know anything about. Right. One of the, one of the examples, actually, that I, I give on that is the, the 1953 coup that overthrew Mossadegh in Iran. Whether you agree with the policy or not, set all of that aside. Um, but from an operational perspective, so Kermit Roosevelt was sent out there with an objective. He tried the first time and he failed. But by the time that information about his failure made it back to Washington, he had already tried a second time and succeeded. So just as Washington was coming back with a cable to say, okay, stop, we're done, well, it was too late. Right. He had already actually achieved the objective. With, again, whether or not that was the right policy uh, is a whole other debate. For, but from a, an operational perspective, this is somebody who was set out with an objective and basically was left to achieve it however uh, he saw fit and without having to answer back constantly to headquarters. Now, of course, you have instant communications, um, cables back and forth. And I, I think this has led to this this notion of ops by committee, where you have more people sitting back at headquarters making decisions for how an operation is going to go. And it gets very bureaucratic and process-laden because you have so many people trying to give their input right. as to how something should go. But it also slows it down. The person on the ground who's trying to make that meeting or trying to do whatever he or she is trying to do is so busy waiting for the people back right. at headquarters to sign off 32 people on cord to get the cable out the door um, that it it can really hurt uh, how 
effective and efficient an operation is. Which is, uh, to me, is a little bit strange because the CIA had been directed traditionally by a politician or by a military commander. Now you have somebody as a director of the CIA who worked his way up from the lower levels of the CIA. I mean, Brennan is almost a career guy. Mm -hmm. You'd think someone like that would understand a little bit better about how to get around the bureaucracy and kind of how to give the middle level, lower level people the tools that they need versus adding even more with fusion centers and with a fifth directorate and all this. It seems like the person that should know better is the one doing the opposite. Well, the thing to remember about Brennan coming up, it's true he's a career uh, officer, but he grew up in the, in the DI. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he grew up as an analyst, and he grew up in a time where there was a very big distinction, right? There was a wall between the DI and the DO. Like literal geographic uh, distinction yes, at yes. Langley, right? Yeah. They, they, they Geographically, they sat separately. They didn't talk to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, you know, everything was compartmented. There was no way that operational traffic was ever being read uh, by an analyst at that point. CTC, the, the Center for the Counterterrorism Center, has, of course, changed some of that because we've started working the two sides much closer together. And I think that's what Brennan is aiming for as he creates these new mission centers. Um, I think it's important to remember, however, that analysts and case officers are very different people. Uh, as I wrote about on uh, in my series about the intelligence community, analysts are extremely smart and can tell you the most minute details with very big enthusiasm about things you and I have never even heard of right. and would never understand. Uh, a case officer, on the other hand, uh, can find a bottle of Johnny Walker during prayers on a Friday. These are very different skill sets. They don't always mesh together. Uh, and so some of this new mission center things that they're putting together, I think, is causing some concern because you have these well-rounded officers, as Brennan keeps discussing, and the, re- the reality is you, you don't want well-rounded officers, I don't think. I, I, want, very, uh, I want officers who are very uh, s- trained in specific skills and can do specific things. Instead of being an expert at one thing, you're mediocre at a you're lot You're mediocre of at everything, exactly. Yeah. Um, and they already say that a, a case officer is a jack of all trades, but it, it's a very different set of trades that the case officer is a, is a master at. And uh, again, the two personality sets don't always work together. And so when you start having analysts moving into management positions that oversee operations, right. uh, that can create... Um, conflict, and that can create, I think, in some ways, um, lesser operations or um, less effective operations. Well, like or no, chief analyst. station places. Is right. Well, then that's Brennan's story, mm-hmm. right? He grew up as an analyst, but he he managed to to get a COS slot, and that in the old days that didn't happen so much. Whether that's right or wrong, again, I don't know. But you want to make sure that if you have somebody overseeing operations. They understand the intricacies, the gray area, and the creativity that goes into running an operation. It really is an art, and it requires freedom of thinking of absolutely everything. And one of my concerns as we develop these well-rounded officers is that a lot of that creativity 
and tradecraft is being lost. There used to be a very strong tradition of mentorship, mm -hmm. particularly within the DO, with young officers learning from their older counterparts about how to run these operations and how to be creative. You could sit around a conference table for hours just thinking about all the creative ways that you could uh, solve a problem. Or a bar. Or a or bar. A quite, yeah, yeah. quite often it involved yeah. that bottle of Johnny Walker. Yeah. But, <laughs> uh, you know, if that's what gets you creative and that helps you solve the problem, then great. And I just worry also with the, all the war zone tours that everybody who's going through and not doing sort of trade craft types of tours, uh, we can discuss that after mm. if you want, because what you're doing in a, in a, in a war zone is very different than right. what you would be doing you know, in a European capital, for example. And a lot of those capabilities, I feel, are just slowly disappearing. And I, I'm not sure that the leadership today is trying very hard to, to maintain those capabilities. Yeah, I mean, old-fashioned human seems to be kind of going to the wayside. You had the technical collection side. Well, you know, SIGINT's incredibly important, and Massent and Nimit and all those mm -hmm. others. And then you have the militarization, in many ways, of the CIA during these last 15 years. Absolutely. Where, uh, like, so Peter Ernest, who's our executive director here at the museum, spent 36 years at CIA, the vast majority of them in the DO. And he may have only carried a gun once or twice and never used it, never pulled it out. Uh, it was a different world, and now case officers are, are essentially paramilitary forces in many ways, or certainly they have to be trained that way. Um, do you see that as a problem? I assume you do. And, and uh, what's the solution? I mean, can, do, Brennan even talked about the idea of going back to traditional humans, and people at first thought he was talking about less technology, but in many ways he's also referring to this idea of what the CIA was created for in the first place, collection. Right. So I agree with you that I, I think that human has, uh, has been sort of taken down a notch. Um, I agree. Data, SIGINT, MESIN, all of those, it's all important. They can help each other. They can augment one against the other. Um, but I think that human still, like you said, the CIA was created for this. It's the only agency that can do this. It's the only agency that should do this. And so that's a capability that we need to, to keep. With so many of these young officers growing up basically uh, professionally in the war zones, that capability is being lost. So meeting, a, a war zone is much more, it's run by the military, right? So everywhere that you're going, you're waving a big US flag, you're going in an armored personnel right. carrier, everybody knows who you are and what you're doing. And you have to do what the military tell you because it's their turf. And you're basically in a position of debriefing. That's not to say that other things don't happen. I don't know. But that's a, a main function. It's not very covert. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, traditional human in the sense of tradecraft and these types of things, I think, is still extremely important. Some of it augmented by technology, but some of it not. Um, sticking with the... the counterterrorism narrative, it's important. The, the people that just helped us, you know, to the information that we recently got to help bring down the Paris-Brussels mm -hmm. cell came from a human being who said, I don't like what I'm seeing, and I'm going to report it. These people were using burner phones. There wasn't that much SIGINT right. or data to collect on them. If somebody is walking around Paris saying, hey, I think I want to set off a bomb because I'm unhappy, 
they're not necessarily posting. Some crazy people are posting it, but it, the communications can very easily be, be moved offline. Um, and it really takes a human source to know what's happening in a community. That goes back to the idea we were talking about before. If you're really on the ground, you actually know what's happening. And it gives you a very different perspective than what you can see just through SIGINT. Right. Moving away from the CT side of things so, to sort of more traditional uh, collection priorities, human is still incredibly important, I think, particularly when it comes to plans and intentions. Um, we didn't know that Russia was about to walk into Crimea or Ukraine or Syria. The, these are not things that you're necessarily going to find, again, through data. Right. Um, and I just think that the human collection side needs to remain a priority, and I worry that that capability is being uh, slowly eroded away. Well, I can see how somebody that's done multiple tours in Iraq or Afghanistan with CIA would come back and have trouble doing a basic counter surveillance run i mean it's just not something that you're doing I they mean, haven't done it yeah they haven't or they if they've done it so long ago that you kind of lose that that track so let, let's shift gears a little bit and let's ask the question why write a satirical novel about cia about your former not it's not cia in the book but it's clearly <laughs> a serial novel about cia what what led you to taking this 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 road so a few things so Victor and the Rebel really started as something of a catharsis. Um, I had a moment where I was standing in a station and uh, something in Yemen had blown up. And we were all watching this on TV. And the chief of station walked out and said to one of the case officers who was there, this guy at the time was a 12-year veteran of the counterterrorism center. And the, and the COS said to him, have you filled out your agency employee satisfaction form? <laughs> And I thought that this guy's head was just going to pop off. And he said, you know, the terrorists aren't filling out any blank forms. He used a very bad word. Yeah. And he walked out. And I thought, that's kind of funny, actually. What if the terrorists were <laughs> filling out forms? What if they had to go through this bureaucracy that we have to go through? And so I took a number of stories that I had myself, Catch-22s, that I had observed or lived through, uh, as well as some anecdotes from friends. And I, when I left, I said, this is funny. Right. <laughs> and we've, we've all suffered for a very long time, I think, um, in a culture of fear and being told how scary everything is, and especially when you're in the agency and you're constantly reading about threats. It's really nice to laugh. <laughs> well, it's, it's, you know, Twain, tragedy plus time is humor. I exactly. Think you can certainly see that there. Um, know, I'll oh, also sorry. say, sorry, that satire also was a great way to tell it because it allowed me to tell a lot of the truths that I wanted to tell but not have the publications review board go against me. Right. I, you, you even see on my notes I have PRB here. I, I mean, we, we talk to authors all the time who are ex-agency employees and the, the, the struggle is real with the PRB, but a lot of them are trying to get uh, books written that are nonfiction that are talking the the worry of the PRB is classification or sources and methods. I, I, I'm almost I wish I was a fly on the wall when they read your book. Just the react. <laughs> what kind of reaction did you get from the PRB about a book that was this snarky? Let's use that word when it came to CIA. 
There was no reaction. Huh. I got I got the form emails back. You know, thank you. We we have received it, and then we have no objection to the publication. Perfection. Yeah. So it yeah. it um, it worked out really well on this one. I've had some other um, things that I've been going back and forth with them on, but on on Victor and the Rubble, there there was no issue. I was a little surprised too. I kind of wanted to be like, what did you think of it? Right. Well, I mean, but I mean, there are, there. Are, Yes, it, 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 it's, it, it's a terrible look at the absurdity that can be bureaucracy, but I think some of these plot lines are pretty close to life. I mean, the idea of metrics and, and other things like that, that you, you plot, just how far did you have to tweak reality to make it satire? I don't think it was very far in some cases. <laughs> I'll let the reader <laughs> try to uh, figure out what's truth and what's uh, fiction in it. I, I will say there's. I don't think there's anything in the book that came out of nowhere. Yeah. I don't think there's anything in there that I just completely made up out of the blue. I took things, I turned them, I twisted them, and I played with them to try to present what was absurd in the situation in a way that was uh, safe and secure to to do so. What did, what did your former colleagues think that that have read this or or? I, Many of them at your level probably thought it was hilarious and loved it. I mean, have you heard anything back from former bosses or former bosses of bosses and, and how they've reacted to it? Yes, I haven't heard anything back yet from sort of the higher level people. But, um, well, the, I mean, the, you know, people who've been in for a long time, yeah, it's, it's, even if they're not in management positions, they certainly laugh at the, the concept and the parts that they've read and they say, yeah, this is... This is, yeah, you know, <laughs> this is pretty spot on. Um, but no, I, I haven't heard from management oh, yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I didn't expect to like this book as much as I did just because I'm jaded and, and you know, just I get stacks of books. I'm like, ah, we'll see what it is. But it's a very, very funny book. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I had to put it down a couple of times. I was reading it on an airplane and people were looking at me funny because uh, <laughs> I'm laughing at this book. I mean, some of this might be my very odd sense of humor. I mean, I, I guffawed at... You're changing the global war on terror to the total war on terror. And since this is a family-friendly program, we'll let people <laughs> pronounce the acronym on their own. Um, but I wanted to ask you, uh, many there are former officers that are authors. You know, I think of Valerie Plame. I think of Melissa Maley, who's a close associate of ours. Their characters, in many cases, they're writing children's books or are younger versions of themselves. Well, your main character, Victor, is obviously not. But how much is he like you? Victor actually is a conglomeration of a number of officers that I met and worked with along the way. Some of the experiences that he has were mine, to, again, to an extent. Um, but he, he proved a very good tool to put all of these anecdotes into. I actually played around with the voice uh, for a long time. I tried first person, I tried a female lead, I tried all kinds of different ways. And in the end, Victor just seemed most representative of all of the different stories, all of the frustrations, all of the ridiculous anecdotes that I had come across. And he just sort of built up from there. We've already mentioned that your, your, one of your inspirations for this book was imagining the terrorists having to go through some of the same bureaucracy as CIA. And this is such a wonderful part of the book. I want the reader to really get a you know, full picture of this because there's amazing parallels. But I, I have to say, 
the PowerPoint presentation was glorious. Anyone who's military, anyone who's agency, um, the, 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 I guess the recruiter or the, the, the top brass from the quasi Al Qaeda unit coming and giving the PowerPoint presentation uh, to me that I had to put the book down and I was just like <laughs> laughing in my seat. But again, we'll let every, we'll let the reader uh, see how wonderful these parallels are before. But let's let's kind of roll on end on this. So if you're like me, you often get questions from people you know from from bystanders about the similarities between spy pop culture and the real world of intelligence. Um, maybe now more than ever with this book, as you're talking to people at events and other things like that. And I want to bring this up because. Your article in Slate was was fantastic. Where where three you and two other former intelligence people play the homeland game, the homeland, game. and that that rang true for me. I've been uh, for the last two years. I've been reviewing Homeland for the Wall Street Journal and being asked real versus fiction. So what now as as somebody that's moved into the fiction world, what is your favorites? What are the kind of the the, the pop culture stuff that stands out to you as being the most realistic, the the most uh, where you can say, all right, they got it right. Do you, do you find yourself overanalyzing things like many of us do when it comes to intelligence, pop culture, fiction? Yeah, I figure it's like a doctor trying to watch ER or a, right. or a, a public defender trying to watch CSI or something. I definitely am critical of it. I never took to Homeland. The minute they brought the cell phone into the safe house and all the, I was just like, yeah, I'm, I think I'm done with that one. <laughs> But it's a it's a compelling story. Look, you know yeah. they you know they're interesting, and Damien Brody's good looking, so <laughs> that's fine. Um, and I actually like a lot of pop culture because I can say to some people, you know, look at these parts, and I can explain the agency in a way then that maybe they can understand, even if it's not James uh, James Bond or Jason Bourne or something like that. Sometimes you have salient points that are made through. Um, through some of the conversations, I'm not a huge James Bond fan, but there is a <laughs> there there is a, a back and forth in uh, I think it's in Skyfall um, where he's meeting the new Q, who's like the young you know kid who's just out of his pajamas, and they have a back and forth where Q is trying to convince him everything can be done with the laptop, and James Bond is saying no, you actually need somebody on the ground to tell you what your laptop is telling you. So sometimes I'll pull examples mm -hmm. like that from pop culture uh, to make a, a broader point. But I actually think, and the, the pop culture I was thinking of and was always in my mind when I wrote Victor and the Rebel was M.A.S.H. Um, That's a really interesting comparison now, <laughs> thinking about it, yeah. Because you have, again, you, you have the headquarters field dynamic, um, and you have the people who are sort of out there in the middle of it wondering what are these orders that are coming down? They create for themselves uh, their own world. Um, you know, the war zones are a lot like camp, <laughs> I think, uh, because you're all experiencing something that's very uh, strange and uh, heavy. I mean, it's a difficult thing to take. But, okay, then to use pop culture again, I recently saw Whiskey Tango Foxtrot uh, with Tina Fey. And... Some of the some of the ways that they explode by having parties and drinking and these types of things is the way that people are handling the stress of the situation right. that they're in, uh, and I think Mash also shows that where you know these guys find their ways to sort of cope with 
the isolation and the stress right. and the experiences that they're having together, but with people who they wouldn't necessarily share anything with sort of back in the real world. Right. Well, and I think both MASH and your book also show that regardless or maybe despite the heavy bureaucracy and the people trying to get in the way, these are still professionals who are doing their job. And not to give away the end of the book, which I won't, um, you know, but as much garbage as many of the uh, people in the field have to deal with from headquarters, they're still out there fighting their way through it, just like the doctors in MASH are dealing with this crap, but they're still professionals, they're still saving lives. Uh, intelligence personnel, even if they're filling out 27 forms to get, a, <laughs> to get permission to do something, are still doing their jobs. And in, it's even more heroic in many ways that not only are they dealing with terrorists, but they're dealing with their own bureaucracy behind them as well. Exactly. And that was what I wanted to show with Victor. Was as, as Victor is trying to catch this terrorist, he's just foiled at, at every turn, but he just keeps pushing. And he... He goes to great lengths mm -hmm. in the end to achieve his objective. Omar, uh, who's, our, who's the terrorist, um, who also finds himself, as he's trying to carry out his attack, he finds that he's overcome with some red tape coming from uh, his sort of headquarters as well. And they each just keep pushing as much as they can um, to, to achieve it. They, they really just try to overcome this, this system that's all, all around them. Well, the book is Victor in the Rubble. It is incredibly entertaining, and, and not only that, it's it's written by somebody who understands this as well or better than anyone might. Uh, so, it, you know, it, it it really, really felt true in many cases. Uh, and if you are ex-agency, future agency, or just somebody that loves this genre, you will find there's something for everyone here. Uh, the author is Alex Finley. Alex, thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to SpyCast. Remember, every Tuesday we will post a new podcast available from both spymuseum.org and iTunes. If you have any questions or comments about SpyCast, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org or leave a comment or review on our iTunes page. You can also follow us on Twitter at intlspycast. That's intlspycast. Talk to you next week. Hey listeners, we're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey and share your feedback now.